welcome to Vascular Crosstalk. This podcast is brought to you by the North American Vascular Biology Organization, NAPO, and its Education Committee. My name is Lisandra Villa-Ellis, and I will be your host. This is a special episode in honor of the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. We want to recognize the special challenges women face in our field and discuss ways to continue making progress when it comes to gender equity. I am honored to introduce you to a wonderful panel that we invited for today's episode. Diana Lautenberger manages the AAMC's Gender Equity Portfolio as a Director for Gender Equity Initiatives to integrate gender equity approaches across the association's missions and work. That portfolio includes research, education, and projects to promote equitable working environments, as well as developing resources for marginalized populations in academic medicine. It takes an intersectional and gender-expansive approach to addressing gender equity issues in higher education and STEM fields. Ms. Lottenberger serves as a faculty member for the AAMC's Leadership Development Seminars for Early and Mid-Career Women, as well as being part of the AAMC's integrated team dedicated to unconscious bias training and education. She provides in-depth, implicit bias, microaggressions, allyship and bystander intervention training to faculty, staff, and allied health professionals. We also have with us today Dr. Andine Cleaver, who is a professor of molecular biology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Her lab examines how cells take on their fates during embryonic development, and in recent years, she has begun to apply this interest to tissue engineering and organoid technologies, examining how to better vascularized lab-generated tissues. She currently teaches at UT Southwestern and is the director of the Genetics Development and Disease graduate program there. She is keenly interested in graduate student education and mentorship. And Dr. Cleaver has served as the president of the North American Vascular Biology Organization in the past. And our third panelist for today is Dr. Luisa Iruela Arispe, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Cell and Developmental Biology at Northwestern University. Prior to this post, she was faculty at UCLA, where she became the first woman to direct the prestigious Molecular Biology Institute. There, she also chaired the Interdepartmental Molecular Biology Graduate Program and was the founding director of the Vascular Biology Training Program. Her research efforts amount to approximately 200 published peer-reviewed research articles and reviews with substantial contributions to the field of vascular biology. She was president of the North American Vascular Biology Organization and has served in several other leadership roles in other organizations and societies. We are so excited to have these wonderful panelists today and let's begin our discussion. Welcome everybody. I am so excited to uh, have amazing scientists as panelists today. Um, and we're just gonna have a really open and 
hopefully fruitful conversation about gender equity uh, in science. Um, this podcast edition is um, to honor International Women and Girls in Science Day. Uh, so we uh, decided to do this panel discussion to talk about that issue in science, but also what it looks like in our community. Uh, in the vascular biology community specifically. So first of all, let's start with Diana. And we're just going to ask you if you could give us a brief overview of what is the actual data uh, on gender equity in biological sciences. Well, thanks for having us. And I'm really excited to be here and for the conversation. This is such a great place to start. Um, I wish we had the whole podcast time just to answer this question because there's a lot of data that we could go through. I'll try to keep it short, um, but there's quite a lot to talk about. Uh, if we look at trainees and learners thinking about um, representation, there's a lot that we can talk about in terms of the data on gender equity, but starting with representation, we know women are doing pretty well at earning degrees. They've been out earning men in bachelors um, and in most fields in masters for quite some time. When we think about um, STEM fields with big M at the end, medicine also, um, women have been 51% just over the majority of medical um, school graduates for the last couple of years. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, um, since the 1990s, women have actually represented about 60% or more of graduate students in the biological and medical um, doctorate programs. Um, so in terms of actually getting um, women into these fields, we're doing a pretty good job. When we think about how that translates into postdoc positions, faculty positions, that's really where we start to see some of the data break down. Um, even though women are such a large, robust number in those trainee or doctoral program numbers, when we look at actual postdocs, um, women are only 45% of postdocs. When we think about um, faculty in terms of representation numbers, We've got, um, we've definitely been making progress and I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but um, in terms of academic medical faculty, women are at about 42% faculty. So we're, we're making our way slow and steady to 50%. Um, but we all know that as we look up the leadership pipeline, if we're talking about full professors, department chairs, people in leadership positions, um, senior associate deans of different administrative areas, uh, those numbers really drop off and get much, much smaller, where we're really not even at a third of department chairs being um, women across the country. And that obviously changes depending on what um, specialty you're looking at. Um, so, you know, in terms of faculty, and it's really important for us to think about not just looking at this lump number of 42% of faculty are, are women, where do those really break out? Um, where are women? What types of departments? What are the degrees? When we're thinking about women scientists, um, you know, only 30% of, of that 42 are MD, PhDs. Um, only about a third of basic science faculty are women. So those numbers are actually a lot lower than the national average. Um, and also needing to be intersectional. When we talk about this quote unquote monolithic term of women, who are women? What does women mean in terms of um, medicine and science? So if 42% of faculty are women, of that 42%, 62% um, of that is um, of those women are white. And so we're talking about a real need to diversify even this concept of women 
that we're talking about um, in STEM fields. And we should be really in, intentional about being intersectional when we talk about the, the progress that we have to do. So that just really in terms of the representational numbers, but that's only one part of the conversation. Um, and I won't go too much more because I wanna hear about um, our panelists and their thoughts about this, but just to set the stage, um, we clearly know that there are representational issues that we still need to work on. Um, but then when we talk broadly about the data and the evidence base around gender equity issues writ large, um, we know that there are um, large inequities in rates of promotion. Um, we've done lots of salary equity studies over the years um, where women in medicine are making 82 cents on the dollar to white men. Um, and that number really changes if you're talking about STEM fields or, or clinical departments. Um, we've also done a lot of work thinking about sexual harassment in academic medicine. And I feel like that could also be its own topic just to think about um, where we've got about one in three women in STEM fields reporting sexual harassment, and that um, often is, is much, much higher. We talked a little bit um, about some of the, the leadership challenges. Um, and so these are some of those kind of big categories that we look for in terms of inequities. Um, but there are so many other small factors to consider when we're looking at biological science careers, um, where inequities might come up if we're talking about authorship, uh, you know, PIs and funding, who's getting mentored, who's getting sponsored, protected time, who's tapped for new projects or leadership positions. Um, we know that there are inequities and there's a strong evidence base that there are inequities in all of these areas. And these are those less, you could say visible inequities that you can't necessarily point to and say this representational issue um, and say this is a problem. But these are also the areas that um, really are more informal um, and where our biases can really come in. So the main takeaway I think when we're thinking about the evidence based on the data around um, gender equity is that we have a strong demonstrated um, evidence base for all of these types of inequities in medicine and science. But I think there's still some resistance to even believing the data um, and an even greater resistance, unfortunately, to, um, to taking action. So I know that we're gonna talk about some of those solutions later on. So that's as quick as I can do the, uh, the data argument. About I really the, the appreciate the effort. <laughs> it's a hard thing to just summarize, uh, but it really um, sets up the discussion. And I think you raised some really uh, important aspects to consider, even how informal some of these things are and that they would be hard to quantify and measure, but we all experience it. So I want to pass the ball to Luisa and Undine um, and ask from your own roles as chair and senior PIs, professors, how do you perceive these issues that Diana has mentioned? Uh, what are the problems that you can see from your side? You go well, ahead. <laughs> we, can, we can slice it um, anyway. But I mean, I think, Diana, what you, what you mentioned is, is what we see. I mean, we do see this across uh, cross-section in departments where now I can see, you know, I can see that 50% or very close to 50% is actually women. Um, but what we start seeing is a lot of attrition. 
right? So as women go up in, in transition from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor, you have less and less and less. And the reasons I think are, are many, and I think that's what we probably should like focus on. Why is it, why, what is the attrition? How we can make this better? Um, but, but then moving up, right? So department chairs, deans, you know, people in leadership positions, it's sad. Uh, you know, it's sad to be in a room where you are one out of two or maybe, you know, in a room of 50 men. Uh, that, it, it just, it hurts and it's very obvious and it's very uh, clear. And I think that we need to understand how to alleviate the attrition and, and let's just make it equitable, right? So, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it's like, like you said, we're, we're living it. So we know it. We see it, right? And the question is, is what do you do about it? And we are going to talk about some possible strategies and solutions. Uh, but I think the first thing before you do anything else is just to admit what is, uh, and then just to say, okay, let's tackle this head on. Why is this happening? And what can we do about it? It's changing little by little. I have hope. I think things are going in the right direction. Uh, but we have to be able to talk about it. Um, and be able to point to, you know, some solutions. And I think having good role models is one of the solutions uh, to seeing what others before us has done, you know, have done. The problem is when <laughs> there's nobody ahead of us and we're the trailblazers, right? So uh, there's a little bit of that, uh, but at the same time, lots of good is happening. So uh, let's get into those solutions. I want to want to talk about that aspect. Good. Um I think you mentioned something that it's important and I want to sort of get back clear and out of the way from the very beginning. Uh, listeners are probably gonna be mixed. All genders uh, yeah. can listen to the po these podcasts, right? And I wanna make sure that everybody's on board and on the same page and working together for the same goal. So what would you say to a male student, for example, who says, Look, I am not sexist, uh, but why why am I getting this sort of on me? Like, what what should I do, or what should I even listen? Why do I care? What would you say? So, I think that this is a huge opportunity area where gender equity work is going is really thinking about um, men and developing men as allies. I think the first hurdle to really get over, uh, Lysandra, is exactly what you described of why, why should men care about this issue? Um, and if it's not impacting them, or if it seemingly is not impacting them, why should they be engaged? Um, aside from all of the really great evidence base about the benefits of diversity and having diverse teams and how much better um, your organization, your department, better science you're going to be doing if you have more diverse people in the room, there's also, um, I think, a, a moral imperative um, that we really need to think about the, the cultures and the norms that we have in STEM, in science, in medicine. And in many cases, we have these very harmful, very abusive, um, very oppressive norms and cultures that we just take for granted and just say, this is the way things are, and we're going to allow bullying, and we're going to allow all these hierarchical relationships. And and that's just kind of the, the, uh, the badge of honor that you have to go through or the rite of passage that you have to go through. 
And so what I often say to men is, although on the surface, you're benefiting from these structures and these systemic um, ways that we are operating in academic medicine, um, you're really not benefiting from them at a deeper level. At a deeper level, there is this ambient um, harm that is going on where if we are allowing um, biases, harassment, bullying, oppressions in our environment, even if it's not directed at you, that's negatively impacting you. And so I think what I try to say to men is, even though the system is working for you um, in some ways, it really isn't working all that well for you, right? We still have lots of issues in terms of um, men also feeling harassed, but I think we hear from men too of um, burnout rates or feeling like the, the climate and the culture that we've created in STEM fields um, is not sustainable. And so really working with men on their allyship skills, um, you know, and learning how to step in, how to call out bias when it happens, I think is really important. Plus you want the best people at the table, right? Exactly. So mm -hmm. even if you're a man, you're looking around at your team, your lab, your environment, you want to just have the best people, whoever they are, right? And if you cut out just 50% of people, then it gives you less choices, right? So yeah. I mean, I think I think that there are, you know, inherent differences between men and women and how they see life. And I don't think it's better or worse. I, I uh, by all means, I love women and I love men. I have a child who is a male and a child who is who is a girl and I, I adore them both. And so I can I can see the, the unique perspectives and so forth and so on. And it's really interesting to see when you have a table where you do bring men and women together they complement each other in a way that I think is difficult to see, uh, you know, when you only have one gender. And I, I'm talking also one gender, having all women is also, I think, an issue. It's interesting, you know, men tend to be very direct and, and, and tackling the problem, and women tend to be more, okay, let's see everybody and make sure that everything is taken care of. And I think it really requires both those aspects to solve a problem effectively and really fully. Uh, and, and I enjoy tremendously interacting with a group that is highly diverse, not only in gender, but actually perspectives, backgrounds, uh, cultural differences. It really makes us all better, right? Can I paint a little teeny story? Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my husband's also a scientist and we both deal with administrations and all kinds of headaches. And he often writes emails when he's mad about something and he has me read over them and to put that more negotiation kind of aspect into his email. He says he always likes to pass it through the filter. And I love the opposite because, you know, I tend to be maybe too soft. And so he helps me be tough on some of the things I really want to say. And so, you know, just apply that little microcosm of a relationship into the work environment, you know, if you're able to get everybody's best qualities to the table, I mean, it helps everybody, right? Yes. <laughs> and I think that this raises an important uh, issue as well, that we're, we're here tackling the gender diversity equity, uh, but there's more to that diversity, right? Even within women, uh, what Diana was saying at the beginning that 62% uh, um, are, for example, white, that is a really important distinction to make. 
Um, and I would love to get your thoughts on how do you think we can do better in that aspect? Do you think it's a matter of representation um, that's affecting um, who we're getting in and who we're lifting up within our structures? I think that the data would certainly um, support that when we're thinking about who we're getting and when we're getting um, kids interested in STEM careers, in medicine. Um, I think when we look at, for example, the numbers around medical students, um, women, or medical, women medical students are slightly more diverse than men uh, are, uh, not by much, but you know, slightly. And so we're watching that definitely over time. And so I think we need to consider who we're mentoring, who we're um, you know, showing science as a career, as a viable career to, and then bringing it back to this, um, to the idea of attrition that was raised earlier. We really, I think, need to pay more attention to the mid-career leaky pipeline issue because if you're getting great talent in and diverse talent, we're talking about diverse women from lots of different backgrounds, but we, because we're not taking care of the cultural environmental issues, we're going to end up losing them. Um, we know that that doesn't just have a, you know, a, a financial cost on the institution, which it absolutely does to replace faculty. Um, but there are larger costs in terms of the cost of the institution and, and the talent that we're that we're leaving the whole idea of you know not engaging 50% of the bench. So I think it is um, also figuring out how to keep those folks. We have to do equal effort recruiting diverse folks in, but then we have to make sure that we're keeping them. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? How how do you think what is the environment that we are creating that is getting women out or not supporting women to go continue raise up? Um, rise up in those uh, in their institutions. What do you think the problem is? Well, I think you know we we really need to have a, a, a shift in mindset and practices of senior senior faculty and just the existing faculty. So I think that we really need to think about uh, creating and sustaining a culture of inclusive excellence and, and create coordinated and collaborative and supportive groups. So it's not just about, okay, let's say next paper, next grant, next thing. It's actually having a network, a, a social network that can, can enable people to talk about problems, to solve problems, to lift each other, right? So I think that that is missing. And it's something that it's gonna take a while to, first of all, accept, realize, and then do the hard work, uh, which is actually to, to, to change what we have and now elevate uh, people. So I, I think that that is, is, is something that is, is starting to be uh, kind of sinking in uh, but it's, it's going to take a while. The other issue that I think is so important and absolutely critical is societal. So it's not just the, you know, the support that the institutions can give. But if you're a woman and you have three children and your husband, for whatever reason, is either unable or unwilling to contribute, I mean, who is going to take the children to the doctor? Who is going to go to school? 
who is going to, I mean, all the things that we need to do that are part of, of, of being a mother, but, but that frequently, you know, a, a, a father could also contribute. But if, if that culture is not there, or even if, you know, your mother, grandmother is saying, no, it's, this is your job. You can't, you know, let your husband. So it's, it's so complex because it is broad. It is, I, I can tell you stories of, of women that actually decided to leave, again, attrition, as at the assistant professor to associate because they just could not do it. Not because they were not supported at work, because they were not supported at home. That's a good but, you know, this is, this is where we can help. And having role models around us, other women that are all fighting the same sorts of issues, right? That all have partners, that all potentially have families, struggles outside of the workplace. When you have people around you that you can look to and you can see, oh, well, how did she deal with it? How did she deal with it? And I mean, I, I've been collecting stories about how women with children, because I have three children, how women with children make it. It's difficult for all of us, it's difficult for the men too, it's difficult for the women. Um, but seeing how other women do it have really, really helped me. I mean, a lot of us actually come to these jobs, to our assistant professor positions with potentially a husband and small children. And, you know, we're isolated. We're actually far away from our mothers and grandmothers. And so the only people we have is our husband, right? And so the relationship there becomes very important, but it also becomes really important to learn to negotiate and to ask for what you need. And I was lucky enough that a lot of the female scientists around me, they would just say, well, tell them to make dinner. And I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> you know, I, so it, it helps to have women that you can talk to. And so I always recommend wherever you are, at whatever level, graduate student, postdoc level, faculty level, find some peer groups. And it doesn't have to be just women with women, although that's great, too. But, you know, and talk, talk about what you're going through that because you can't do it alone, in my opinion. You have to do it with friends. You have to do it with a network. Um, and it is hard, especially for people like me. I was so paralytically shy when I was younger, going out and finding help and finding friends and, and sharing your difficult stories and when your husband didn't help on this or that, you know. But you have to, to learn to do that. And if you hear other people potentially like on a podcast like this, supporting you and telling you, you can ask, you can reach out, you can form peer groups and vent and talk about things. You know, hopefully that enables you to go ahead and do that. Yeah, no, those are great uh, points and that's great advice. I have to say from my own point of view as a trainee, um, it's sort of difficult when either you don't have women in your department um, that you can turn to um, and then feeling like maybe you're making too big of a deal of this issue, especially if you're talking to a man about it, uh, but also what if, you know, if you wanted to reach out to another scientist who's a female and farther ahead in their career, you just feel, oh my God, I'm going to be judged. Like they're going to think this reflects on my ability to do science, you know? So these things can also um, discourage being that, um, mm -hmm. being that advocate that you need to be for yourself. So, um, and 
for children I think children have raised like a new bar of difficulty for me it's like new level <laughs> unleashed uh but I did get at yesterday my son went to the pediatrician and I was asked oh why didn't you take him and I said because well, my husband could and I had things to do <laughs> so <laughs> you know we have to educate others as yes. well right be yeah. our own like you said our own advocate and yeah. it's tough Especially, you know, for women that are shy and, you know. I remember actually being in a departmental retreat and a senior faculty member came to me and said, where are your children? And, and I said, they're with their father. And he looked at me and said, how can you leave them with him? It's like, it's their father. Exciting. We don't need, we don't need that kind of comment. No, 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 no. I mean, I think I don't see that anymore. This was like 30 no, years. No, it exists. It was, it, I know it's, it's sad, right? So changes in culture uh, are so, are going to be very important. Yeah. And I think you can, you can help rewrite some of these societal narratives in your institutional's your institution's approach to how you address these things. So making sure that we aren't um, perpetuating stereotypes by the types of um, resources we're providing. If you're starting a young parents group, it's for men, it's for women, it's for all genders, you know, we're being broadly inclusive. And so, you know, the, because I think the, the motherhood penalty and fatherhood bonus is a real phenomenon. It is not something you're making up. You're not um, making too big of a deal of this. There's lots of research to support that. And so I think institutions also need to consider um, why things are the way that they are. We created a system, a way of promoting people, a whole set of norms about what makes a good scientist very intentionally. It's not on accident and it's not a universal norm. We created these norms when it was mostly white men, straight men who had caregivers at home. I mean, if you even consider why we have a 40 hour work week, if you had someone taking care of absolutely everything, of course you can work 40 hours. So I think it's also on the institution to interrogate some of these norms that we have of um, why we don't, why childcare or thinking about family life is secondary. That's intentional, that's not on accident. <laughs> And so I think the institution can help support changing that narrative and those cultural narratives that we have by being more equitable when we think about these gender stereotypes, parenting and parenting resources don't just go to women, right? And then also having your trusted partners that um, you can turn to uh, colleagues when you are really struggling. Yes, I very recently started to think why school, public school only starts at age five. What am I supposed to do with my child for five years? Um, but that's for another podcast. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, think that we touched uh, upon a subject that is very important is how can we be better advocate for ourselves and for other women in science? Well, I think doing this <laughs> is definitely, uh, so I really applaud your initiative, Lissandra. I think this is a great idea. Uh, is something that people can listen to while they are on the bike or <laughs> running or doing whatever. But uh, I, I think that really uh, advocating at our own institutions 
for change is, is definitely an important way. Uh, but also creating social networks. I, I want to reemphasize this because I think that, you know, it, it, we all have gone through times where, you know, things are rough and it's like, it's just, I went through a period when my child was, uh, you know, two years old. And then my other one was a newborn when I was breastfeeding and I just, I just couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep and I was getting sick. And I, I got to a point where I said, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. I'm like sleepwalking. I, I have no memory of, of two years of my life. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it is nice to have just somebody that says, you know, it's okay. You're going to make it, you know, other people have gone through it. Just go to sleep, wake up in the next day. Things are going to be different. And just having somebody say that makes a world of difference. And I think we, we need to be, you know, nicer uh, to each other. We need to build these connections. And we also need to know how to reach out. I mean, I, I, I didn't. And, and realizing that, you know, it's okay and you're not gonna be judged if you say something to someone and, and reach out and say, you know, I really need, just hear me out. I, I, I just- you know, I, Louisa, can I, can I just say, I had that same exact moment where I just thought I can't do it. It's just mathematically the hours of the day and the work that needs to be done both at, you know, in the lab and at home, and it just can't be done. And it was in fact, a woman friend who got on the phone and who told me she had left academia and she said, don't do it. She said, you know, I made a mistake. I thought, oh, you know, the children, they need me. She said, People, other people can love your children. Daycare can love your children. Lots of the other parents that are at the daycare can love your children. And, and it was just the act of saying that to me, of saying it's okay to have hit this point and it's okay to just put one foot in front of the other. Don't give up. Your career, you know, is important. It's something that you love. Um, and, and, you know, to have somebody say that. So Louisa, it's just bizarre. It's you and I had the same exact parallel <laughs> moment. And I'm absolutely positive that tons of other junior faculty, female, you know, have that, even, probably even male have that. Uh, but to be able to have somebody tell them, been there, I know how you're feeling and you can make it through it is really important. And I'll pick up on another thread of um, that was already mentioned about mentors and, and seeing role models. Uh, when we think about how we can better advocate for women in science, um, really raising the visibility of women scientists. When we think about, um, you know, corrections that have had to be made about Nobel Prize winners, you know, who actually contributed to the science, or if we think about award winners, um, if we even think about who developed the COVID vaccines, the people that have visibility in our society are, are often men. And so we can all do something in, in WMC, we try to do this, um, to the extent that we can, is just raising the visibility of women scientists. The work that they're doing, you can put it in newsletters, you can submit awards if you know um, fantastic people that are deserving, and um, just raising that profile so that people can see other um, diverse folks doing science that look like them. Um, and I think there is tremendous power in learning how to be your own advocate. I think that society has some um, very specific messages that we teach girls early on and we socialize women to be small, to be quiet, not to talk about yourself. 
Um, I don't believe in the confidence gap. I, th I think that's total BS. I think it is socialized out of girls and women. And, and society really punishes women for speaking up um, and being confident and advocating for yourself. And so I think the more often we have women doing that, um, talking about our accomplishments, talking about the great science that we're, we're doing um, is really going to help uh, reset that narrative. I love that. That is great advice, very actionable advice, uh, but also really important. And it reminded me of one of the things that Undine said. I have my husband also revise my emails to be like, is it sounding confident enough? Will these yeah. people get that I'm upset? <laughs> and it's, you know, you rely on your network to make sure that these things are happening and sort of unlearning those biases that you kind of learn because you grew up <laughs> as a woman and you kind of learned those biases. Um, and I would like to ask you, um, what are some actions, what are some things that we can do as individuals that are not an institutional level? Because yes, we know that our institutions need to change, but it's sometimes really disappointing and even frustrating to think that we are the ones who have to generate that change within our institutions. So what can we do um, with each other besides you know, forming these social networks, advocating for ourselves, supporting other women in science? What are other things that we can work on? There is a lot, right? I mean, there is a lot. And I think that the first thing starts with uh, communicating to everyone that we are all responsible and that we all have a part to play. And, and I think that that brings introspection and that brings reflection and to allow every individual to say, okay, so what can I do to make this environment better, um, you know, how can I how can I help my 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 fellow colleague uh, who is from an underrepresented uh, you know population succeed? You know, how can I help my my uh, younger colleague, uh, faculty woman, to to make the transition from assistant to associate? You know, so I think that there are there's a lot of little incremental things that we can do individually and we can do collectively. So depending on you know where you are at in your professional life, I mean, as a departmental chair, I have you know initiated a lot of uh, reflections, discussions, open town halls, you know, a lot of incentives um, to ensure that we are not only having an open dialogue, but also that we're pushing forward this uh, new idea of a, a social more conscious and, and uh, interlinked uh, group of scientists moving forward, right? So that's, that's one thing that I would say, you know, individually and also within our own positions, we have the power to make a change. Say by doing that, by creating and by saying, you know, it, we are all responsible. By doing that, I think you give the chance of elevating everybody. You know, if you are allowing them to think, oh, well, I can do these things, you're giving them that opportunity. You're helping everybody. So I, I think consciousness is, is important. And 
you know, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Well, you should be able to lead all the horses to the water. If they don't get to go to the water, they can never drink and they can never do anything. So you, you know, you have to give them that opportunity. Then they have to drink the water on their own though. That's their, it's their own thing. You have to succeed on your own, but if you're not given that chance at the very beginning, you know, then you can't, you can't get anywhere. I'm sorry, D Diana, you go ahead. I so just, we both just have so many, yeah, we have so many strategies. We're so excited to talk about it. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, what was raised is really important that yes, we all have a role to play. We can all do something and what that looks like might depend on your level or your rank or where you're positioned in the institution. So individuals, they can take on calling out bias when you see it. Someone in the middle, you know, more mid-career, um, they can host some of these conversations about norms, about assumptions, you know, institutional culture that we've never really questioned before. Um, those people that are in leadership positions have tremendous power um, to initiate some of these policy changes, whether you're starting, you know, salary equity analyses, you're starting allyship trainings, um, you know, you're making chairs accountable. There's a lot that you can do at every uh, level. So it's really important. Yeah, so I also want to bring up uh, some other initiatives that are happening uh, more broadly. So, for example, NIH has developed a series of grants. So they're, they're called FIRST. It stands for Faculty Institutional Recruitment and Sustainable Transformation. So these awards, I mean, they're multi-million dollars, 15, 16, $20 million awards. They're actually, the, the goal is to enhance and maintain cultures of inclusive excellence in the biomedical research community. So these are, these are really important awards that have been, now they're in the second round of applications. And those of you who are looking for faculty positions, there are institutions like University of Maryland, University of New Mexico, University of South Carolina, Columbia, Cornell University, Drew University, uh, UCSD, Northwestern University, they all have gotten these awards and they have ads right now uh, that are looking for diverse faculty and uh, start looking at this. I think that this is very, very important. Uh, and I think we need to uh, become, so by recruiting clusters, I think that that is going to start changing you know, society, the, the culture of society in academia in a way that is more cohesive. And there is a very strong will by the faculty to actually be part of that change. And I understand that there is also something in at NSF. Yeah, one other resource that I'll mention quickly is the NSF has advanced grants, um, which are all centered around diversity and gender equity initiatives. And there actually was a book that was just um, published a couple of years ago cataloging all that fantastic work. So if you want to know about gender equity in STEM and innovation specifically, look up um, NSF advanced grants. Those are great resources. And I also think that um, I was doing some research for this podcast and the AAMC actually has really good resources um, on statistics, surveys, all of this, um, and also some groups that you can join. Um, which I think it's really interesting. Um, it's a really good alternative. Also my own plug here um, for trainees that are applying to K99s, there's a Mosaic K99 that supports minorities um, that want to pursue an academic 
career. So that's also a really great opportunity for minorities. Everybody that's interested should look it up. Um, and so I want to end on a positive note here. And I have two last questions. First is what is the most rewarding and exciting part of what you do every day? What motivates you uh, to keep doing what you're doing? Diana, you go first. Okay. Um, you know, as someone who's not uh, a scientist, but works with scientists and clinicians and um, all of the wonderfully talented, um, fantastic people in academic medicine, the most rewarding part about my job is being able to teach folks something new. Um, and being able to really change hearts and minds. And there is nothing more rewarding than getting, um, you know, a bunch of folks into the room who've been clinicians or scientists for decades and, and have this really um, staunch belief about how the world is supposed to work and to see light bulbs go off. Um, and it's really encouraging that um, even if there's one person in a room, when you talk to them about gender equity, if someone walks out saying, this is important, this is something we need to take on as an institution. Nothing gets more rewarding than that. If you um, are dealing with very, very talented, um, amazing people in medicine and science who really want to push diversity, equity, and inclusion forward. So it, it makes my job um, really easy to do every day. Lisa, you want to uh, sure. I mean, I think <laughs> along the same lines, I mean, I think there's nothing more exciting than having, you know, a postdoctoral fellow or a, or a graduate student walk into your office saying, guess what I found? And oh, my God, that lights me up like, a you know, <laughs> a thousand bolts light bulb. It just I just bounce off the walls. I think that 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 um, there excitement about science fuels my soul so that that's essentially what makes me you know wake up every morning and say no matter how hard i love that <laughs> it's true i mean we really live vicariously on the on the science side through our students and and that joy of discovery is what you know made us go down this road and when you see it in now your you know scientific progeny's eyes it's amazing I have to say just on top, just to add to what Louisa just said, seeing them find their way, you know, and figure out, transform from, you know, an undergraduate student to now somebody who's gonna go out in the world and do things, whether it be academic science or other things, just to have them suddenly, you know, figure out what they wanna do and be good, well in their skin. I, I love seeing that process and then having them leave and then write me emails and send me pictures of where they are and what they're doing. I love that. So it's really people, to be honest with you, right? That is all about people, right? Yeah. It's, it it's uh, connections, human connections and supporting each other. It's great. And for the very final question of the day, I would really like to hear uh, what would the advice or the words of encouragement be to women in science at any level of their career, girls that are in high school considering careers in science, even doing rotations in lab in the summer, uh, to, you know, graduate students, postdocs, junior faculty, mid-career faculty, or even, you know, full professors that have made it, quote unquote. Um, 
what would you know, words of encouragement be in terms uh, of you know gender inclusion inclusion diversity the progress that we've made and where we're going what gives you hope well i can start um just by saying um you know for thinking about all of these women all of these folks gender diverse folks coming into science I think one of the, the loudest messages that we can say is you belong here and you can absolutely do it. We all have those voices in our heads sometimes, but you belong here and you can do it. Um, and so beyond that, just three quick things of finding your voice, uh, find your voice early, know who you are, know what kind of science you want to do and be, and be loud and proud about that. Um, ask for help. Find your allies, find your support network. It takes a lot of different people to support a scientist's career. So ask for help. Don't be afraid about that. And then just trust your gut about um, your career, about your choices, the good things, the bad things, when you need to make a switch. Um, if things don't feel right, uh, just trust your gut um, and, and know that there are all of these networks, all of these organizations that are here to support you. That, that's what I would say in terms of encouragement or advice. I have to jump in because I had almost the exact same things. It was one, you can do it. You can do anything. And the second one was don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Get, get help, ask, make friends, make allies. And then I can't forget what the last thing was. <laughs> you can use my last I do remember, one. I do remember. We have the same one. <laughs> it, was, it was actually put one foot in front of the other. It's one day at a time, one hour at a time. And, you know, that's how you build success is, is not all at once. You just build it little by little, you know, and just do it. And we are there to help. I don't think I can, I can add any, <laughs> definitely. I mean, that, that is it. That is the advice. Perhaps the only little piece of advice is that when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel like you just can't do it and it's too late to call somebody, go to sleep, wake <laughs> up the next day, you will all be better. One foot in front of the other. That's absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> One foot in front of the other toward the bed is what Yes. <laughs> That's a great one, Diana. That's perfect. And, yeah, necessary. Mean, and remember, as it's been said many, many times, it takes a village. So don't be afraid to reach out and it will be it will be great thank you all for listening to this special episode of vascular crosstalk please let us know what you thought about this discussion and its format as well as future topics that you would like to hear about you can reach out to us via twitter at vascular biology and we look forward to hearing from all of you in our vascular community this podcast was produced by Navos Education Committee with the help of Niha Uha and Strider Meadows. This was Lysandra Villa Ellis for Vascular Crosstalk. Until we meet again. Bye.